Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And Hunter, I don't know if this will, uh, if, if this is going to be too much for y'all, but uh, I'm going to be reading this out of the King James Version. So if you are able to get it up, great. If you, if you can't, don't worry about it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And if you will, tonight, as we're giving, stand with me in reverence to God for the reading of our text. Philippians chapter 2. Verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The title of my message tonight, The Cup, The Cross, and the crown. Remain standing and bow with me for a word of prayer. Holy Ghost, do your work and have your way and accomplish what needs to be done in every area of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you and you may be seated. Don't miss the service tomorrow night. Can I hear a big amen? God's going to work mightily tomorrow night. Tonight, I want you to drink from the fountains filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Where sinners plunge beneath that blood lose all their guilty stains. Jesus said in his word, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He said, and if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Tonight, if I can get here to take a long look, not at a pastor, or an evangelist, or a Christian leader. But if I can get you to take a long look tonight at Jesus Christ, none of us will leave here the same way that we came. If I can get you to fasten your eyes on Jesus and see him not only as a crucified son of God, but as our resurrected Lord, our coming king. If I can get you to see this Jesus in all of his glory and splendor, your life will never be the same. Because I'm going to share some things with you tonight that have changed my life. And put my life on a course and direction for Jesus Christ, perhaps as nothing else has. I want you to look at three things in the life and the ministry of our Lord. Three things that are powerful and dramatic. Three things that I want you to take a long look at with me tonight. One is the cup. The next is the cross. And the next is the crown. The cup, the cross, and the crown. First of all, I want you to take a long look at that cup. Now, this cup that I'm referring to is not an ordinary cup. It is not the communion cup as sacred and as reverent as it may be. It is not the cup that you'd find on the shelf of the kitchen cabinet or in the furniture store. It is not a measuring cup or a coffee cup. It is another cup. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 20, 22? Are you able to drink from the cup that I am to drink from? and to be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized with. Jesus said, are you able to drink from the cup 
the one who emptied himself of being the son of God, the one who emptied himself of the kingly robes of heaven and then took upon himself the robes of sinful flesh. One of the things that Jesus talked about in his earthly ministry was the cup. You remember when Jesus went into Gethsemane's garden and he fell at his knees and he prayed as never a, prayed, a man has prayed before. The Bible says that Jesus prayed with sweat that came from his body as it were great drops of blood. He fell on his knees and he fell on his face and he prayed with such agony and sorrow of soul. But do you remember what the heart of his prayer was? The heart of his prayer was this. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, wait a minute. Why wasn't Jesus concerned about the nails or the spike or the spit, the spittle? The spear. Why wasn't Jesus concerned about the crown of thorns rammed on his head? Why wasn't Jesus concerned about his position of power as the only begotten son of the living God? He wasn't praying about any of that. It was the cup that was giving him trouble. It was the cup that was bothering him. It was the cup that he was wrestling and struggling over that was causing him to sweat blood. What was it about that cup? My friend, there is a mystery surrounding that cup that cannot be explained by mortal tongue. And as the Son of God hung on that old rugged cross and he cried out these words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There is a mystery surrounding that cup that I, no other preacher could give you the full impact of it tonight, but I'm just gonna reach down and try to touch the hem of the garment. This cup that Jesus is wrestling and struggling over, you see, for God's Son, to be found down here in an earthly garden is wonder enough. But he, that he should be found in the foes of conflict, wrestling and struggling over a cup is unfathomable. It blows your mind when you're trying to figure it out. I mean, he whose eyes first reflected the glitter of the sun and he watched the fiery trail of the comet as it went down through boundless space is now shrinking from a cup? He who existed before Abraham and before whom the whole universe shall bend its knee to him. Now he treads the wine press alone and he groans from the depths of bitterest woe and he cries out, oh my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The mystery of the cup. Fleshly eyes can ever hold it. Finite minds cannot comprehend it. What is the meaning of this cup that Jesus is wrestling and struggling over that is causing him to sweat blood? What is the meaning of it? You see, that cup contained the sins of all the world. Your sins and mine, every sin of nameless wrong, hatched in the black hearts of hell, every smear of debauchery, every stain of iniquity, it settled like thick black dregs deep into the bottom of that cup. Think about it. A drunken son strangles his tender mother. Drunkenness slips into the cup. A depraved degenerate snatches a baby from his mother's arms and bashes his brains out against the rocks. The sin of depravity and murder sink into the cup. A blasphemer spits out profanity against God. The sin of profanity the sin of blasphemy climbs into the cup. A lustful young man desecrates a young lady's virtue. The sin of 
fornication, the sin of adultery, the sin of lust settles in that cup. Every sin that I've ever committed, that you've ever committed, that the whole universe has ever committed, from Adam and Eve all the way down to the last day that the earth shall stand, it was all in that cup. And Jesus drank that cup. The wheels of redemption stand still as the Son of God with trembling fingers raises that cup. But there is more to it than that. You remember what it says in 1 Peter 2, 24? By his stripes we were healed. By his stripes we were healed. You see, not only the sins of all the world were in that cup, And Jesus was being forced to drink that cup, drain it to his bitter dregs. But what about all the sickness and disease? You see, the cross of Calvary is not only the shed blood to save you from sin, but on that cross, our Lord, there is healing as well as salvation in the cross. There is healing by his stripes. We were healed. He sent his word and healed us. His word is healing and medicine to our body and to our bones. He said that we would lay hands on the sick and they would recover. He said he is Jehovah Rapha, the great physician. Realize then that to get to that cup meant Jesus had to drink. To get to that cross meant Jesus had to drink that cup. So in that cup was every vile cancer, every polio, epilepsy, heart attacks, strokes, growths, tumors, viruses, nervous conditions, covid Everything that taints, that cripples the human mind, the human body, the human soul, it was all in that cup. And Jesus drank that cup. And that cup contained all of the sins of the adulterer, the drunkard, the dope addict, the harlot, the gambler. It had all of our sins in it. No wonder the wheels of redemption stand still. No wonder the Son of God is sweating blood. But do you think that was all the prayer that Jesus prayed that night in the garden? I don't believe it was. I don't believe the gospel writers could have told us everything that Jesus prayed. If those olive trees that stood in Gethsemane's garden had tongues to speak, what would they say? I, along with some of you perhaps have stood in Gethsemane's garden. The place where Jesus prayed that prayer. A a place that today olive trees date back to the time when Jesus was in that garden. I couldn't help but feel like I was standing on holy ground as I stood next to an olive tree that was more than 2,000 years old. And I had to stop and ask myself, if this olive tree could talk, if this olive tree could speak, what would it say? If you could say, olive tree, did the one who created you Did the Son of God, did he pray more than that short prayer that is recorded in three of the four Gospels? Father, take away this cup. Was there more to that prayer? I know the olive tree would say, oh, that wasn't all of his prayer. No doubt the olive tree would say, oh, he groaned. He said, why must I drain the dregs of this cup that is so polluted and vile? Why must I, who am sinless, become sin? Suppose the rolling hills all around Gethsemane's garden could speak. 
And you could ask them, rolling hills, did Jesus pray more than that short prayer? I believe the rolling hills would say, oh, that wasn't all of his prayer. He prayed, Father, I'm holy like you are. I've never even tasted a forbidden fruit. Ask the rolling hills, ask the olive trees, ask the rocks of Gethsemane, ask all the creation of God that was in the garden that night that Jesus prayed that prayer. And no doubt they would tell you so much more than what is recorded. But our Lord and Savior, trembling fingers in that garden he raised that cup he raised it up and he drained it to its bitter dregs and hear me tonight he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God for him get the full picture he drained that cup to its bitter dregs he leaves the garden in full victory now The light of triumph is upon his brow. For you see, there is no fear now. For as he leaves that garden, he leaves different than when he entered it. There's no fear. There's no disturbance. He leaves that garden in full victory. Why? Because you see, in that cup were the nails, the spike, the spit, the spittle, the spear, the thorns, It was all in that cup. Hear me tonight. The cross was in that cup. And Jesus drank that cup. Did you ever wonder how Jesus was able to stand before Pilate and Cavus for the mock trial without trembling and fear? It wasn't because he was the son of God. It was because in Gethsemane, Jesus brought himself under submission into the will of God. In Gethsemane, Jesus brought himself, he drank the cup of surrender and commitment that cost him his life on an old rugged cross. Now for for the message that goes much deeper than what I've said. Everybody in this building, if you are really sold out and trying to live for Jesus, in your life, you will go through Gethsemane's. I don't mean to bust your bubble, but you're going to have more than one too. And a place in your life where you sweat blood. A place where you weep, you pray, you cry, you struggle. What's it over? Hear me tonight. It's giving up yourself. Giving up yourself. Drinking of your own cup of surrender and commitment to Jesus Christ. You see, many people want Calvary shed blood to wash away their sins, but they want to bypass the cup. They want to bypass Gethsemane. Oh, we want the blood. And we want the benefits of the blood and the benefits of the cross, but we want to sidetrack Gethsemane where you get on both knees and say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done because look right here, it will cost you your life to pray that kind of a prayer and really mean it. Most people don't want to give up their lives. People want to be saved, but they don't want to be born again. You say, what's the difference? People want to miss hell, but they don't want to change their lifestyle. They want to go undoing as they please. Walk as they please, talk as they please, do as they please. Now listen, if Jesus hadn't settled it in Gethsemane, there would have never been a Calvary. If Jesus hadn't settled it down on his knees in Gethsemane's garden with a kind of a prayer that emptied himself, he wouldn't have made it up Calvary's hell. He wouldn't have been able to face the cross. And hear me, you cannot make it either until you've had a Gethsemane experience. That's where you are stripped of yourself. This is for every pastor, every evangelist, 
all of God's people as well as the unsaved. You have to go through Gethsemane. You see, each of us have crosses and burdens and trials and turmoil. Listen, when you sell out for God, the devil will come at you. He'll come at me and he'll throw everything at you, including the kitchen sink. Are you having to fight the devil to live for God? If you're not, you better check up and see whose side you're on. One lady stood up during testimony time in her church, and this lady said, Preacher, I've had to fight the devil all week long to be here today. And her husband stood up on the other side of the sanctuary, and he said, Well, she hadn't been the easiest to live with either. (laughs) I'm not talking about husbands and wives tonight. I'm talking about the old devil, the old slew foot, the one that will give you trouble, the one that will get on your trail and mine, the one that you need to give him a message on the soles of your shoes every day. In the morning, call him rat face. Give him a punch in the nose and two black eyes every morning when you get up. And hear me tonight, the only way that you're going to be a match for the devil is for you to get filled with the Holy Ghost and have a Gethsemane experience. You're going to have a struggle every inch of the way until you've had a Gethsemane experience. You settle it down on your knees in Gethsemane's garden where Jesus did. And then the crosses of life will not get you down. They will not defeat you. But it all starts with Gethsemane. Drink of the cup, but then go to the cross. He said, for I am God and there is none else. There is a mystery surrounding what happened on that cross that cannot be explained by mortal tongue. As the Son of God hung on that old rugged, old rugged cross and he cried out these words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who among us can comprehend those lines from the Son of God hanging on the cross to his Father in heaven? Think about that. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Yes, the word is very clear about this. God in heaven had forsaken his only son hanging on that old rugged cross. Why? You see, when Jesus hung on that cross, the sins of all the world, yours and mine, they were all upon him. And if God would have looked down at his only son hanging on that tree, how many parents and grandparents do we have here tonight? Raise your hand. I've got a question for you. What if that would have been your son or your daughter hanging on that cross and you had the power that God has? How many of you could look at your child hanging on that cross and not helped them? None of us could have. We don't want our loved ones to hurt. You know, my wife and I, we've got four children. Our twin girls, Miracle Joy and Mariah Faith, were born. Miracle Joy weighed one pound at birth and dropped down to 12 ounces before she started growing. Her twin sister, Mariah, was twice as big. She weighed two pounds. Miracle dropped down to 12 ounces. Three weeks after Miracle was born, the doctor called us into his office and told us that they had run out of places to poke her body to uh, uh, give her IVs. And so, They were going to have to do a central line placement. And he said, because she weighs 12 ounces, it's a a very serious surgery. He said, we're going to have to go into the arm and go through to her heart. So 
They made all of the arrangements. They did the central line placement. Everything worked perfectly. But then we got that dreaded phone call at 3 o'clock that in the morning, that next morning. One of the doctors on staff, on duty that night, that morning, said, Brother Todd, you and your wife need to get to the hospital as quickly as you can. We've lost Miracle Joy's heart rate and blood pressure completely. And we don't believe she's going to make it. And you need to get here to the hospital. So my wife and I rushed to the hospital, and when we walked into the NICU, there laid Miracle Joy. Her body was gray, glazed over. She had IVs and needles in her arms and her legs and her belly. She had tubes in her belly and, her, and, and an, a needle even in her head, on top of her head. We, she had uh, tubes coming in and out of her mouth and her nose, and she just looked lifeless. And I reached over to touch Miracle like any good daddy would want to do. And the doctor took me by the wrist and said, don't even touch her because right now the least bit of a stimulant could cause her to, to uh, go into cardiac arrest. So you can't even touch her. So as I looked at Miracle in that condition, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. And God said, Tim, this is just a fraction of what it was like for me to have to leave my son hanging on that old rugged cross and not help him. And God said, Tim, you have several children. I have one, one son. I'm happy to report that Miracle Joy is now 26 years old. She's completely healed with no physical problems at all, 100%. She's on the worship team at our home church, and she loves God with all of her heart. Somebody give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Amen. But none of us can comprehend the love that God had for his only son hanging on that cross. And I believe the reason why God turned his back on his only son hanging on that cross is so that he wouldn't have to turn his back on you and me when you come to give your life to him. Come to be saved. Come to be forgiven. Because I'm convinced that if God would have looked down at his only son hanging on that tree, that the long arm of God would have reached across time and eternity. He would have ripped those nails, that spike, out of his hands and his feet. He would have lifted that crown of thorns off of his head that the son of God would have been born into the arms of God back into heaven where he really belonged. God turned his back on his only son so that he wouldn't have to turn his back on you and me. He cried on that cross, and there was a darkness that fell in midday. What was happening with that darkness? The window shades of heaven were being pulled. The Bible teaches us that Jesus died on that cross to save you from sin. And when Jesus went to that cross, it was the same as him going to hell for you. Hear me. Jesus went to hell for you on that cross. And you'll notice that the things that Jesus is saying from that cross are the same things the people of hell are saying. Jesus said, I thirst. Is that not what the rich man said in Luke 16? In hell he left up his eyes being in torment. He seeth Abraham afar off. Lazarus in his bosom. He cried, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Said Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. That's the cry of the people of hell. Matthew 8, 12 says that hell is a place of outer and eternal darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and no doubt all over hell. People are crying up. Hell is a place where Jesus, uh, where, where God has been forsaken and no doubt all over hell. People are crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus 
went to hell for you on that cross. It was as if an eternity of hell was compressed into six electrifying hours, put into a red-hot blanket, and then wrapped around the Son of God. An eternity of hell was experienced in six hours as the Son of God hung on that old rugged cross. Take a long look at that cross. There's more there than meat fleshly eyes. There was an earthquake. Is there any meaning or significance to this earthquake? You better believe it. You remember when they had the triumphal entry into Jerusalem? And the people gathered in the streets of Jerusalem with their palm branches and they praised and glorified Jesus as they rolled that donkey down the street? And the religious leaders came to Jesus and they said, you want us to tell these people to be quiet? You want us to tell them to shut up? Jesus said, oh no, don't tell these people to be quiet because if they hold their peace, the very rocks will cry out. My friend, as Jesus hung on that cross, the voices of the men and women and young people in that area, their voices had been silenced. And, and at a time when the voices of men and women and young people were not praising and glorifying God, it was then that all heaven broke loose and the ground began to shake with a mighty earthquake. You see, when they took that old rugged cross with Jesus hanging on it, and they lifted it high into the air, and they dropped it into the ground. It was like a sharp knife being stabbed deep into the belly of the earth. And the earth is the creation of God. Think about that. The earth's creator was hanging on the cross that he made on the world that was made by him. And when they took that old rugged cross with Jesus hanging on it, and they lifted it high into the air, and they dropped it into the ground, the ground began to shake with a mighty earthquake. Gabriel... And 12 legions of angels hovered over the rim of the universe. And all Jesus would have had to have done, hanging limp on that cross, would have been to have lifted his head and just given a nod. And at Jesus' command, Gabriel and 72,000 angels, swords unsheathed, would have come down and swept those shouting, those howling multitude of people straight into hell where they really belong. But instead... Jesus went to hell for you on that cross. Oh, what a Savior. Now for the application. Now for the message that goes deeper. When we hold our voices, when we fail to praise and glorify God out loud, when we look at somebody close to us in church that like they've got something out of joint because of the way that they're worshiping God, my friend, if you won't shout us hallelujahs, if you won't lift your voice, God said he'll cause the rocks to cry out and praise his name. Don't let the rocks do something God wants you to do and me to do. Take a look at that cup and drink ye all of it. Take a look at that cup and that cross and see what was happening there. And then finally, take a look at that crown. When they hold... Jesus down off of that cross. They laid him in a borrowed tomb, and the reason it was a borrowed tomb is because he wasn't going to need it very long. And Jesus blazed a trail from that cross all the way to the crown. It was a bloodstained trail, and that blood was not the blood of any, anim uh, of, uh, of any uh, uh, animal. That blood was the blood of the only begotten Son of the living God. Listen to these lines. A dog with food to his collar bound tight was sent to seek a lost traveler one night. 
For hours he kept faithfully searching over the snow, obedient to his master who'd commanded him to go. Finally on the snow he found his man, and to restore his consciousness, earnestly he began. The man was benumbed from lying on the snow, so the dog began to shake him to and fro. A wolf thought the man as he came to life, then he very cautiously reached for his knife. With it, he struck and he pierced the dog's side. Immediately, the dog started home with feeble stride. Upon reaching his master's door, he dropped with a thud. But behind him, that dog left a trail of blood. A trail to him that had used the knife. But to make the trail, that dog gave his life. I'm reminded of one that got sent from above. He came to seek and save the lost. He came in mercy and in love. But he's a devil and a blasphemer, ignorant cried. Then they nailed him to a cross and they pierced his side. But God turned tragedy into victory that day. And now man need no longer lose his way. For Christ made a trail left by his door to guide men safely up to heaven's door. And the scriptures declare and say therein that only Christ's blood can cleanse from sin. And he that tries to enter in another way is a thief and a robber, so the scriptures say. Yes, Jesus left a trail of blood from that cross all the way to the crown. Let's get it straight tonight. That crown that our Lord received was not the crown of thorns that men made and are still making and putting on the brow of the Son of God. That crown that our Lord received was not made by men. You remember what it says in Hebrews 2, 9? For unto him that was made a little lower than the angels under suffering and death, now hath God crowned him Crown him with glory and honor. The crown that our Lord received must have been the crown that God gave his only son when he came back from his mission here on the earth. Can you fathom what happened in heaven when Jesus got home after everything he went through? I mean, if, if, if you let your imagination run a little bit wild right here, you'll see that they must have had the biggest parade, the biggest processional that heaven could ever have. I mean, marching and shouting up and down the streets of glory. There must have been all kinds of shouting. And when Jesus got back to heaven, it would be hard to imagine what the heavenly host did. And then I can see the Son of God walking up to his Father in heaven that loves him so. And I can see Father God reaching over in the heaven's treasure chest pulling out the most beautiful crown that heaven could ever make and crowning his only begotten son, Lord of all, Lord of all. I can hear the heavenly host singing it. Oh, hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him, crown him, Lord of all, Lord of all, Lord of all. Take a long look at that cup, at that cross, at that crown. You know what the gospel in America that is bathed with sloppy grace? We all want the crown, and we all want the benefits of the cross. But no matter what any preacher tells you, it all starts with the cup of commitment. Now, some will take that cup, and they'll take a little sip out of it. Some will take a couple of swallows. 
Some will even drink half of it. But it's not until, as Jesus said, drink ye all of it. That means it will cost you your life to follow Jesus Christ. Nothing less will do. You see, the hardest thing for you, you to give up, it's not your money. The hardest thing for you to give up is yourself. We don't want to give up ourselves. We, we, we don't want to put Jesus in the driver's seat of our life. A commitment is imperative with everything in life, and it most certainly is essential in your walk with God. And marriage without a commitment will fail. There has to be a commitment on the part of the husband and wife, a commitment to each other, and a commitment to your marriage vows. Without a commitment, your marriage will fail. Without a f- commitment, you'll fail as a student, young person, whether it's in grade school, high school, college, whatever, uh, unless you're committed to your studies and what you're studying to be, you'll fail as a student. A friendship without a commitment won't last. There has to be a commitment on your job, whatever job that you have. Unless you're committed to your work and your job, you'll soon lose your job. And without a commitment to Jesus Christ, which is drinking of the cup of surrender and commitment, you will never amount to anything for God. I'm not just telling you words up here. I've had to fight the devil tooth and toenail to be standing here right now. I know your pastor, this mighty man of God and his wife, Tina, have fought the devil every inch of the way to be where they are for God too. Many of you have done the same thing. Hear me tonight. It's the cup. You've got to drink of the cup. Not a sip, not a swallow, not half of it, but you've got to take that cup and drain it to its bitter dregs. I was in a revival in Enterprise, Alabama. Ten-year-old boy came forward profusely weeping at the altar. I came over and I put my arm around him and I said, young man, I want to pray for you, pray with you. What have you come forward for? And that ten-year-old boy looked at me and he said, Brother Todd, he said, I've come to renew my commitment to Jesus Christ. And I thought, all of us need to do that every day. Your commitment to Jesus Christ needs to be so rock-solid that you'd be willing to lay down your life to keep it. Your commitment to Jesus Christ needs to be so solid that that you will lay down your life. And that means that you're, that means it won't be moved when somebody comes if it's time to go to church. Or if it rains on Sunday morning. Or any other time, if you've really had a Gethsemane experience. I'll come back to it one more time and then I close. This building is your Gethsemane and mine. It will be the Gethsemane for many of you sitting here. You see, Gethsemane is not just a place of, it's not just a garden anymore. But Gethsemane is a place of decision where you make that all-out choice or that choice to go all out for God. My prayer is that when you leave here tonight, you will be so sold out to Jesus Christ that you will take that cup of commitment and drink it, not a sip, not a swallow, not half of it, but that you'll turn it up and drain it to its bitter dregs. Then, after we have denied ourselves and taken up our cross to follow him, we're willing to do everything that he's called us and set us apart to do. Bow your heads, close your eyes, open your hearts all over the building. Worship team, come please quickly if you will.